and welcome to Elixir Talk, your favorite Elixir podcast hosted by people on opposite sides of the United States of America. On the West Coast, my name is Desmond Bowie, and on the East Coast is Chris Bell. Hey Desmond, how's it going? It's, uh, it's getting to be sunny again, it's still kind of chilly, but... Yeah? I don't think it's as cold as it is here, by any means. Probably not, but we're pretty sensitive to this sort of thing in LA because um, none of our houses have insulation on them. So, like, if it's 40 degrees outside, it's 40 degrees inside. And as I recently learned, most of the places in LA kind of leak when it rains, right? So, <laughs> Yes, as you learned firsthand, uh, we're not really suited to anything other than really nice weather. I saw all the videos from uh, MPEX LA came out, though, which is very exciting. Yeah, that is cool. They're all up on our YouTube channel, which we'll link to in the show notes, but it's youtube.com slash MPEX conference. And they're pretty, they're pretty great. I thought they came out really well. Yeah, they look good. Been sending them around. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, all good. What else is going on over there? Like, what's what's post-conference? What's happening? Mm, post-conference, what is happening? Um, I have an announcement that I will um, make, I think, next episode, because we're going to announce it at um, Codebeam in San Francisco. Uh, next week, or probably this week when this episode comes out. Actually, I mean, I guess I could say it now. Um, but we're starting an, uh, a foundation, the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation, to support the growth of uh, all Erlang and Beam technologies um, around the commercial community. So we're going to be sponsoring working groups. We'll be taking um, donations from companies and individuals uh, who will be members of the foundation, and then we use that money to support uh, individuals and working groups to work on foundational stuff like interoperability, documentation, performance, um, basic libraries that everything's going to use. And it's pretty exciting. It's cool. Like there was a, a previous Erlang group that did this for a while, the Erlang Industrial Users Group. But with um, the growth of Elixir, there's been renewed energy to incorporate that community into the larger community and, and move everything forward. So uh, I don't have a website for you just yet. Which is why I didn't want to bring it up, but I did anyway. So stay tuned for more information about that. But it's um, it's pretty exciting. I think it's it's big news for for everyone who works with a beam related technology. Cool. And how are you involved in that? And and who else is involved? Uh, I run the marketing committee, so I I don't actually write any code, which uh, people who have corrected my code can understand. I'm I'm happy about that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> No, I, I'm actually able to program. You've seen my code, right? Yeah, we did some stuff. We jammed on your 1950s keyboard. <laughs> yeah, that was sweet. Although I think I've mostly corrected your code. I don't know that you've you've done a lot with mine. Wow, oh, wow, shit. owned. Oh, shit, it's getting a little. It's sunny over here, but I may be shady over there in New York. Oh, nice. Burn. Burn. Um, speaking of New York, what's new with you? Uh, what's new? Well, we're in full-blown MPEX planning mode for MPEX NYC, uh, which is going to be May 5th, May 18th. I continuously get the date wrong, which is bad. Um, so that's that's what's going on over here. We are lining up speakers as we speak, but the CFP is currently open. Mm. Um, so if you're looking to submit, you can get online at mpex.co forward slash NYC and submit a talk. And we'd love to have you there as well. So tickets will be going on sale pretty soon. 
have some excellent sponsors and we're going to have a great conference. It's going to be slightly different than previous years. Hopefully have a bit more discussion and a bit more like kind of roundtable debate with the audience as well. Mm. So keep your ears and eyes posted for things relating to that. And I'm sure we'll be talking about it in future episodes. So cool. For our international listeners, we got a question from um, Lucas Narciso. Sorry if I'm botching your name. Uh, who's down in Brazil and wanted to know if the MPEX uh, travel reimbursement policy applied to international speakers. The reimbursement policy is that the conference will, if you're selected to speak, the conference will pay for your flight and a couple nights hotel in New York or LA if you're speaking at the LA conference uh, free of charge. So you don't have to worry about any of it. And the question was, does that still count for international speakers? And the answer, of course, is yes. So if you're listening to this and you are somewhere not in the United States, Canada, Mexico, don't worry about it. Submit a talk. If you get chosen, we'll fly you out. Yep. And for those people who are local as well, we also give you a stipend as well. So um, you get a bit of a daily allowance to spend here in the city um, to make it up for those people who don't have to travel so far. So, yes. But we have a past history of paying for flights from Brazil, uh, from Poland. You pay for someone from Warsaw, right? Like all the yeah. way Krakow? No, I'm getting it wrong. Poland. I'm just going to oh. say Poland. Um, uh-huh. And yeah, so, you know, the speakers are everything for us. Um, we don't have an event without yours coming to speak. And he said you'll, and I can't say that. So I'm going to just skip over that very quickly. Um, <laughs> but we, we can't have an event without everyone coming over and speaking. It's, uh, you know... It, it, it's your event and we want to treat you well while you're here and recognize the fact that you're putting in so much effort to do this. So, yes, we pay for speakers, flights and hotels and all around try and give you a great experience. Um, so the CFP is open. Come and submit. Come and talk. Come to New York. And uh, that, that is my sales pitch over. What a pitch, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Here all night, unfortunately, for what you. A- <laughs> What else are you going to pitch us, man? Well, I I guess on a slightly different topic, uh, we have a special guest on the podcast tonight who's sat right here next to me in in an Elixir talk first. Um, So we'd never done this before. So uh, we have with us, we have Zach Smith, who is an an Elixir engineer. Actually, I should give you a full title here. A senior backend engineer at Frame.io. Uh, he has the unfortunate displeasure to work with me um, here. So welcome, Zach. Hello, everybody. Thank Hi, you very Zach. much for that, that warm introduction. Warm and kind of bad. So sorry about that. But um, Zach has a very silky smooth voice. So I hope everyone will enjoy that on the podcast this evening. I, I'm sure that I will be entirely in my head about it from now on. <laughs> sort of just trying to relax you, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, just, just doing a great job. Listening to the timbre of my own voice. So, Zach uh, recently wrote, I think it's a blog post called The Erlanger's View of Elixir, which landed on the front page of, page of Hacker News, which is pretty cool. And I think you've also done some work with Yek and Leaks, which are like Yak and Lex, <laughs> but they are not. <laughs> They're yak and leaks. <laughs> uh, everything, yes, that, that's exactly what they are. Yeah. And I, the blog, yeah, I wrote a blog post called, I think it was called Sketches of Elixir. Okay. Um, yeah, as, as you mentioned, I, and as Chris mentioned, I, I started at, at Frame.io 
in August of last year. And one of the reasons that I was so excited to come on board at Frame was that I have been a kind of hobbyist airline programmer for a long time. And so I was never working on the beam, um, but I, I was a big fan of the airline language, and I was really excited at the the prospect of, of being able to work uh, on the beam, uh, you know, for real life money. So yeah, the blog post is kind of just reflections on now that I've been working with Elixir for however many months it was, four or five months at the time. You know, what do I think of it? How how do I how do I find it? Do do all of my you know preconceptions about it uh, still hold up after actually using it? And do they? <laughs> uh, no, they don't. Oh. Spoiler alert: They don't. My preconceptions do not hold up. Uh, no, no. So I mean, the, the blog post. Yes, uh, I went. When I um, when I first became aware of Elixir, I it, it seemed like it had absolutely nothing to do with me because it was and and again this is you you must cast your mind back to you know the the twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen where my mind is 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 sort of unformed and and uh, immature but I had this very kind of snap judgment where. Oh, well, I like Erlang. I know Erlang. And Elixir is just Erlang with Ruby syntax. I don't mind Erlang syntax. And I don't even know Ruby. So why bother with any of this? Um, and yeah, I mean, basically, the, the, the kind of the summation of my views on it were that, oh, actually, it turns out that the Ruby part, the 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 syntax and the choice of keywords and stuff is i would say kind of the the least the least salient it has the least to do with your your everyday uh experience using elixir um and and, and no i mean it's it's actually been a real pleasure the elixir for me has been airline with a way with a a more coherent consistent standard library with a lot of really dev-friendly tools, um, some really powerful new abstractions that Erlang just doesn't have, uh, like, you know, streams, lazy collections, that sort of thing. Uh, and pipes. Mm -hmm. I love pipes. Erlang doesn't have pipes. Love the pipe. Yeah. So, I mean, hobbyist Erlang is not a phrase I hear that often. So uh, do you want to tell us how you got into it and how you stumbled across this weird ecosystem in the first place? Yeah, that's really interesting. So, um, arguably, I first so I, I kind of got my my exposure to the wide world of programming in general, and certainly functional programming, uh, when I was at uh, Hacker School, which is now known as Recurse Center, which was the beginning of twenty fourteen, and I was getting started, sort of working professionally, programming professionally, and I was doing it in Python. And so Python was uh, the language that I was focusing on when I was there as well. But there are a lot of really smart and really geeky people with a lot of really esoteric interests at, at Recurse Center. And so it's pretty much a rite of passage that you have to at least try Haskell at some point when you're there. So I kind of... Um, got an introduction to all of the different forms of functional programming in a sense for 
why people might like that. But, you, you know, Haskell and, and the ML languages and Scala, as sort of powerful as they were, were also, they felt very academic. They felt like they demanded a lot of intellect and, and background and kind of uh, applied mathematics that I didn't have, still don't have. And, you know, I kind of bumped into Erlang around the same time. And I was so struck because it's like, oh, this is a language that is functional to the core. You know, everything is immutable. There's no changing state there. there you know, it's, it's even single assignment, but it's so clearly geared for pragmatism for practicality right it, it doesn't stand on ceremony it doesn't require you to talk in kind of abstract mathematical terms so it felt very very uh, appealing to work in something that was you know functional programming for the sake of 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 the benefits of functional programming functional programming for for what you get out of it rather than sort of mm -hmm. for what you could say some kind of like purity mm -hmm. and yeah so from then on basically i i kind of when I could, when I could think of an excuse to write something in Erlang, I would do so. So I have a question. Before I got into functional programming, I didn't understand what the deal was. I would hear people go on and on about it, but it's like, I don't know, OO seems all right. So why why functional programming? I mean, what about that, like calling that particular part out? Of, yeah. um, like, And you couldn't have a lot of the other pieces of technology if you didn't have functional immutable uh programming paradigms but like was it about functional programming and would it be such a benefit if we didn't have the other parts of the ecosystem right that's oh that's a great question i'm i'm sort of casting my mind back to then right because now i can talk about how great it is to write <laughs> i thought we were still and, in 2014 mode we still yeah we we're still in 2014 back. okay no good. we're still yeah yeah you never never uncast your mind okay your mind remains casted so honestly, I, I think that part of it was just that when you're with a lot of people who love programming for its own sake and who love programming languages and, you know, Recurse Center Hacker School is full of those people as are like many corners of the internet, you find people who find functional programming fascinating because there's something about it that brings it much closer to, you know, the realm of mathematics and to algebra and, and these kinds of for lack of a word, these concepts that, that feel more beautiful than OO, you know? So I was somebody who got a thrill out of programming and that thrill was largely because I felt like I was in this kind of playground. I was like experimenting and, and exploring these systems with these, these um, really interesting structures that did lots of really interesting stuff. And, and that's all the programming for me. I mean, it was, class hierarchies just as well as, as anything else, for instance. But I think that that was a lot of the foundation. And then I think that a lot of us who have been working in OO paradigms have been working in very sort of conventional code bases. Like when somebody mentions to you, oh, well, you know, you should really try, you should really try list comprehensions instead of iterating or whatever. You should really try insert functional technique here and you try it, you start to see some of the actual benefits to your code as well, right? Which are, you know, oh, wow, it's a lot easier to think about my code when there isn't any state that I have to keep track of. Mm -hmm. 
And for me personally, I like I'm really bad at keeping track of state in my head. Like I'm really bad at doing arithmetic in my head. So that was something that, you know, very quickly it was like, oh, this makes it easier to think about what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So there's it's not just like math nerding out. There's concrete, get stuff done, tangible benefits as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, I will definitely like nerding out was was maybe the gateway drug. But, you know, I, I found myself in many points in my Python career actually reaching for more and more like pure data structures, more um, persistent data structures. A persistent is a like an immutable data structure um, Python library. You can guess how that's spelled if you want to look it up because I would be writing this kind of confusing code that I couldn't reason through. I was like, oh, God, this thing gets passed around to all these places and, you know, this gets added to it. But, you know, and I couldn't keep it in my head. So I, I came to really appreciate the the cog how, how much of the cognitive load was lifted by by uh, using functional techniques in, in just my normal code. Desmond, do you remember that word from the Ruby community as well? I feel like that was like a big like renaissance moment for the for the Rubyists, where what, it was what like um, so remembering like this like functional kind of onset that kind of happened in yeah, the Ruby yeah, yeah. world. Like just I remember like reading loads of blog posts like you know why Ruby should be more functional and like how to apply functional techniques to your Ruby and Rails code base and make things better. And like everyone was searching for this like way to make their job simpler and easier to deal with because mm -hmm. as you're correctly saying there's like you're managing all the state it gets really complex you're trying to do anything to make it simpler and like yeah just reduce that cognitive overhead exactly and, and yeah i mean when i describe my own experiences like just like with the ruby community i was just part of this mm -hmm. this larger trend in in the python community that was having the exact same thoughts and so I, I remember when those came out. I want to say that was like 2013, 2014, mm -hmm. 2015. And sort of as I was shifting to Elixir. But at that time, it felt like there were a lot of Rails code bases that had matured. And a lot of us that had worked on code bases that had been around for five, six, seven, eight, sometimes even longer years, yeah. depending on you know yeah. when you started mm -hmm. or when you read the blog post. And so... We all had the, the great experience of, like, greenfielding a Rails app, and you Rails knew whatever, and then, like, suddenly you have a database and a controller, and, like, wow, gee, we're off to the races. Isn't this great? And it is great. And then um, my cat thinks it's great, too. Uh, and then a few years later, everything sucks, and it's impossible to do anything. <laughs> and we're all like, wait, what happened to the fun? How do we get out of this? And then so we kind of turned to functional as, like, maybe this will – Get us out of the tar pits. You know, yeah. we'll, um, it'll solve all of our problems. And so I don't know if that's true, but I think a question on all of our minds is, all right, so now if we start from the ground up in Elixir, in a functional language, I mean, whatever it is, and we find ourselves five years into a code base, does that, does it hold up? Or do we still find ourselves burdened under like complicated business logic um, developers that came and went and did something that no one else understands. Like, are those the fundamental realities that we have to deal with, regardless of whether there's mutable state, regardless of whether we have uh, class hierarchies or pure functions? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that that is exactly the question you want to be asking, right? Like that is the question I'm asking. You know what? You're so right. <laughs> that is the you. question that anybody should be asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, how the hell does this thing age, and right. how does it scale across teams? It's like it's a great like. Who knows the answer to that at this point yeah. in time? Yeah, I mean, I can only so you know, as Chris mentioned, I came on relatively recently, and. Yeah, my, my sense of Elixir as a language and as a community is there's a lot of that kind of youth and optimism. Um, and also, you know, we have I, the code base that I work on at Frame.io uh, has been around for a couple of years. A year guess. and a half. year and a half. Yeah, yeah. So actually I, I, nearly two years, technically. There you Sorry. Go. So I feel like I've gotten a maybe a glimpse at one way that a uh, Elixir or Phoenix specifically code base can age, as you're saying. Um, I, I think that there are definitely some of those benefits that persist, if you'll excuse the terrible pun. Mm -hmm. Because um, when you're not dealing with class hierarchies and you're not dealing with mutation, uh, you get to think about a much smaller scope. Mm. Right, and so whether your code base is really, really big or really, really small, um, being able to think just in terms of a single module or maybe even a single function is a lot easier than thinking in terms of <laughs> a class hierarchy or something else. Um, but I do think it also has exposed, like, oh yeah, there are a lot of other of these sort of corrupting factors that will be present in any code base, like. Polymorphism is still a huge gotcha, I feel like. You know, one of the things that Elixir has that Erlang definitely does not have is protocols. Yeah. And those give you, I feel like, the 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 the, the form of polymorphism that is most similar to something that you would get in like a, a really object-oriented inheritance-based language. And that's really convenient. And it's also really confusing sometimes. Mm. And so when I yeah, like when I'm in a code base like ours where you know, we have large protocols which have been around for a while and are, um, you know, implemented by a, a bunch of different modules that maybe not are even in the same place. Uh, it's, you know, just as hard to sometimes tell what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Where is this being called? Right. Yeah. So that's something that's going to be true. Uh, functional and not. Yeah. I, I think actually like just riffing on that point, that's like, are probably one of the hardest things to grok in our code base is like what is happening where and like in the elixir community we talk all the time about explicitness and like this need for like understand everything that's going on and how we're completely like the antithesis of like what rails was doing with magic and stuff like that and yet here we are it's in frame io right now and we have like this code base where we have a bunch of side effects that occur through like many different consumers of which you cannot grok at first pass yeah like you have to dig to understand that stuff yeah and uh yeah that's definitely and that's going to be an interesting edge of the code base as it plays out but yeah yeah and i feel like what's interesting about that is that that quality that we're talking about has nothing to do with it, with whether the language is functional <laughs> or not right yeah. like that is an axis that is, you know, there there are trade-offs there that need to be considered that that are, are completely orthogonal to that. Mm. Definitely. I don't use any um, protocols in my app. Like it's something I very rarely use. Period. 
I kind of love it. <laughs> Why? Why? <laughs> like for the polymorphism, definitely. Like just be, being able to like. I think, like, it's one of the benefits of structs and being like, oh, we can implement this protocol on this struct. And, like, literally that's how, like, enum works and, like, so many of the things that we talk about day to day. Like, I think being able to to model things in protocols is a really good thing at times and being able to, like, split out and think about, like, these things as separate units implemented only on this individual piece rather than being functions with different, like, function, like, you can literally do the same thing if you just have a single function that right. pattern matches on different struct types. Right, right, right. But like, it's it's really nice to think about it as separate modules, or you know, they're not separate modules, but at least like separate files. I think actually underneath they get compiled to the same module with like many functions or something. Mm. But I've never really thought about how that gets implemented. But um, yeah, I like having different functions that match on the struct type. Because then, like, I'm in the context of, like, the thing that's doing the thing. And then I don't have to, like, race over to the other... Race over to, like, the other companion, the struct file, whatever, and find mm-hmm. that implementation. Like, all the implementations are right there. So I find yeah. that there's some locality benefits. Uh, but maybe it's just a matter of taste. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other benefits in protocols. Have you got any you can think of? Well, I mean, I feel like the benefit and the drawback is that you have this fallback mechanism as well. Oh, uh, yeah, the so fallback like, to any. Yeah. We have fallback to any, and then we have some generic behavior. And so, again, you could also do that with a function that just has an underscore and does some, uh, some, you know, some generic action. I, I, I mean, I think you're right. Like, I, I, it definitely seems to me so far that protocols are the most complex element of the language. Mm. And I say that even more than, than macros. Like, I feel like I am still getting my head around maybe not how protocols work, but it, what we're talking about. Like, when are they appropriate? When would you reach for one rather than doing pattern matching? You know, especially when pattern matching is so great and, you know, is... is so you know used and, and and common in so many different contexts like i i don't feel like i i have a, an authoritative understanding of the role of protocols in the language yet mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting I, I mean you talked about macros there. i want to like go back to that Let, let's uh zach what's your view on macros here i mean we we use macros a lot at frame for context here so yeah yeah um I am coming to appreciate macros. Uh, okay. So obviously, you know, in Erlang, there's very there's essentially no macros. There's these things called parse transforms, which nobody knows how to do, and so nobody does. Um, it is convenient to be able to do a lot of code generation with a little bit of typing. Right. So like using macros are, are actually really nice. And it's also convenient to be able to, um, you know, in very specific cases, like, you know, we have a, a thing that I think that the biggest, most macro-y thing that I've written here is this thing called def filters, which basically you give it a list of um, fields and it implements a with filters um function which will then call into other generated functions to 
generate queries based on those fields. Yeah, this is all for Ecto, just for context. Yeah. So generates a bunch of uh, filter functions for Ecto based on something where you can define what fields you want to filter on, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So I, I believe you called it your masterpiece. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I was... Uh, well, well, because I, I recently, you know... I recently added a new def filters line and it was like, oh, this is one line of code to do a bunch of stuff at once. Yeah. But I like the funny thing with that was like it was writing that that I also had my kind of what felt like my macro epiphany, which was, oh, this also gives you static analysis. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you are you are actually generating code. Mm-hmm. And so in a dynamic language like Elixir or Erlang, you know, the beam in general. Like any amount of static analysis and static compile time checking that you get is so great. And Elixir gives you some, right? In terms of like calling or accessing fields on structs, you know, it, it, it's, or even, you know, just sort of the, the checking if a, if a function is defined. And so when you're talking about two forms of polymorphism, essentially, one of which relies on runtime dynamic dispatch and might be simpler to read because it's all in functions. And the other of which is more complicated because it's written as a macro, but will not compile if it relies on a function that you didn't write because at compile time, you know all the functions that are supposed to exist to support that macro. That is really powerful, right? Because then you start to get some benefits beyond, oh, I don't have to type as much. So that's where I'm at right now, but I'm sure that my feelings will evolve. Desmond, what are your thoughts on macros now? Are you are you using them more in your code base? Or? We're not, but not for any uh, sort of philosophical reason. I think it's mm-hmm. just it's not a it's not a tool that we are um, familiar with enough to reach for reflexively. And there's there's definitely a bias on my team for like. Just be explicit. Just write it out. It's a few more lines of code, but it makes for a much more consistent code base. I would like to have a few more macros. Like there's a couple of things that we do that are a little clunky that could be tightened up with macros. But mm-hmm. then the counter argument would be, well, how much how much do we really save by writing a macro for it? It feels like Zach, your point is like there isn't that much downside, right? Because you're like you're getting this static analysis as well, and like it's it's going to yell at you if that thing that you're trying to do doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean that's the. I mean, you know, the downside is that it's it's harder to reason about. Like you're absolutely sure. right, Desmond. Like having everything in a function that you can refer to is really really useful. And um, I, you know, I think the part of my brain that has trouble with like complicated arithmetic and has trouble with thinking about state has trouble thinking about AST transformations. Yeah. yeah. Like quoting and unquoting and, you know. I get so tripped up in that so often, honestly. Like, I remember reading some of the def... We we paired on it, I think, for a little bit, where I, like, came over and, like, Mm -hmm. looked at what you were doing, and I'm like... uh, There's, like, a point where you have to really be in it. You have to be, like... Your headspace has to be seriously in, like, macros to, 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 like, get in there, grok it, understand exactly what you're doing, especially when you're, like hey, we're unquoting this and then we're going to be writing out this function and like that's just how it works. Yeah. And, yeah just- I, I get more stressed out writing macros than writing any other kind of code. Like I bite my nails more like in, in as a sort of as a, a measure of ambient stress, I bite my nails more if I have to write like a big macro over the course of an afternoon than any other kind of code. 
Mm. Yeah, there's one big macro in our code that I wrote that I'm pretty sure no one else wants to touch. Uh, yeah, we we definitely have the same thing, by the way. Like we have we have one big macro that generates a bunch of functions for uh, dealing with asset serialization. Oh, but, yeah, 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 yeah. See, that's the that's the reaction that elicits mm-hmm. in everyone. So it's, I mean, I, I I had to use it. I was just copying and pasting from the existing <laughs> module. Yeah. <laughs> And I, I think, like, that, honestly, that is one of the biggest downsides is, like, be, talking about being in that headspace and then you, like, you're, like, I am the macro king <laughs> and, like, you walk away and then, like, could you go back to your death filters code and, like, know exactly what's going on today? I know that I couldn't because a couple of days ago I was, like, wow, this works really well. In fact, this works better, like, I don't understand how this is working quite as well as I thought it would. <laughs> I thought that I had to do like one more step than I'm finding myself having to do, and I cannot explain why. Yeah, I mean, I think that either it's a very simple like degenerate case, which is like, why bother with these things in the first place? Or it's some super gnarly, very complicated, you feel like a superhero, but you're leaving behind a wake of tears and sadness <laughs> that you just choose not yeah. to focus on. But is can be super effective. Like uh, this thing that we use, we use everywhere, and it really cleaned up a lot of the validations that we were doing. On a side note, I did see the other day someone having like a macro that that, uh, that basically is like a using macro to cover up the generation of Phoenix context code. Mm. Yeah, it was kind of an interesting one. So it, like you could give it like ecto relations and it would give you all of the functions on a Phoenix context for like get by ID right. and like all of these functions right, right, for those. Right, right. Those relations, um, and yeah, I think in that point we're basically in like Railsy Active Record land. So yeah, there was a talk at the first MPEX by uh, Brian Weber, who had crazy macros that he would use um, that basically generated like all of his controllers, like the entire file, and then he would hack on it and then find something he wanted to change, tweak the macro, blow away the entire file, and just have it be <laughs> rewritten. And it's like, okay, man, <laughs> cool. You do you. Yeah, I, I'm definitely of the like, let's stay on the reasonable side of macro generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, whatever that weird fuzzy line looks like for you and your team, you know. I think you need to figure that out together, though. I, I mean, I will also say, just from the kind of like the brain tickly perspective, like thinking about what you'd call like syntactic or hygienic macros like Elixir has and that you would find in like scheme or another lisp. I mean, it's really cool stuff just from a kind of an intellectual perspective. It makes your brain kind of light up and, and, Oh, there is a weird, you know, and I mean that, you know, people talk about like, what do you call it? The meta circular, like just all of this meta kind of crazy. Evaluator, yeah. 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 Evaluator. Exactly. Like it just, it, it opens the door for all of the sort of, you know, when you talk to like a lisper and they have that kind of faraway look in their eye because they have stared directly into the face of like pure homoiconicity, like there's a magic there that you, if you don't want to necessarily live there, you'd like to be able to touch every now and again. And you feel like we're giving you that chance in the, in, in Elixir. Uh, hopefully that'll primarily be in my, in my spare time. I don't think <laughs> anybody would want to manage that code. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. So do you want to tell us a bit about what you've been doing in the Yeek and Lex? Did I just... Yeah, no, it's not... 
boy. Did I get that wrong? <laughs> I like literally googled this to try and get it. Uh, right, I'm gonna. Um, I'm in the show notes. I'm gonna post a blog post <laughs> by the one and only Cameron Price, fellow MPEX organizer. That is the top result when you Google this. Um, so it's leaks and yak, and I am uh, sorry for getting that wrong to both you and the Elixir community. Sorry. Well, you you should. I mean, you shouldn't like. It, these are deeply unfair names because they are so i'm i'm kind of like i I'm, i have to say them now and i'm, I'm <laughs> we're all gonna I'm get getting the yips you know um yek and leaks are the erlang slash beam versions of yak and lex which are the sort of l a l r one parser and lexer of record um and they're these these incredibly tortured puns where they take you take yak and you replace the a with an e because it's Erlang, and you take lex and you add another e to the first e because it's Erlang. So like they're designed to be extremely confusing and impossible to say. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 um, I sort of had this weird brainwave for this kind of notation language that I've been building recently. And I decided to build it in Elixir primarily just because I was, at the time I was, you know, very actively learning Elixir um, because I, I had started at, at Frame.io. But also just because, you know, when you think about it, actually the the kind of the, the pattern matching and the binary pattern matching uh, faculties of the beam in general are really, really well suited to parsing, mm-hmm. right? And so... There's a bunch of different parser combinator uh, uh, libraries, and the first, my first kind of iteration of the parser for this language was written using uh, Nimble Parsec, but I decided it needed a little bit more uh, oomph. There's a couple sort of context-free thingamajiggies that I found really, really difficult to express using parser combinators, so I said, okay, I'm just going to bite the bullet and like write a, a yak-style grammar. And so, yeah... Um, Yak is basically yak. You write a grammar, and all of the uh, right sides of all of the the statements are Erlang code. It mm-hmm. just you, it it recognizes these tokens and these patterns, and it just splats them into whatever arbitrary Erlang tuples or lists or even function calls you want. And so they end up really working well together. I, I, I it's just I think it's a really neat mixture of two tools especially when you know we tend to talk about you know what is the kind of the killer app for Erlang and the beam and elixir it's massive concurrency and telephone switches or some you know web era derivation thereof but it's like oh yeah you know what's really really good for pattern matching is parsing Mm -hmm. and so it's it, it was really it's been really fun to First of all, I'd never written a parser, and I'd never written an, a, a grammar, like a Yak-style grammar, so I was absolutely learning as I as I went along. Cameron was actually a huge help to me, his his articles, and he was also kind enough to kind of just sort of be on hand for any, you know, like midnight Slack messages, like, wait, how the hell does this work? But but it, it was a lot of fun to write, and uh, I think understanding what a parser can do and... and how much leverage you can get specifically out of like writing a grammar, uh, excuse me, a context-free grammar is actually a really nice tool to have in your tool belt mm-hmm. just as a programmer because there are a lot of problems 
where if you squint at them in the right way, oh, this is a parsing problem. And I could write something that will, you know, kind of guaranteed efficiently, correctly handle this in a very declarative way. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I think it's it's a really nice uh, a really nice tool set. So what's the what's the output of that? Like, what does it like produce? As someone who's totally newbie and hasn't done this, I mean, it it produces literally anything you want. I mean, so so my parser produces a, a, a simple AST where you have nodes that are uh, tuples. Mm-hmm. They're tagged tuples, so the first element is like an atom, and then the second element is a list of children or arguments and and you know it's a a recursive data structure so you literally get an entire ast that's built just out of lists and tuples and actually if you want to you can even sort of fake it to be structs because you know structs are as you know the you you can express a struct in erlang it looks kind of funky but you can put everything together so that if you call your parser from elixir code what comes out are fully realized structs, which you can then call, you know, the struct uh, protocol and all the other goodies that you get. So, I mean, it's really anything you can express in Erlang code, it just sort of comes out the other side. So have you done that where you generate it and call it with Elixir code or how do you? So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, the, 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 the interpreter for this language consumes a string. There's a, a pass over it where it like, basically inserts a new line at the end if there isn't one. And then it runs it through, oh boy, leaks, <laughs> um, which produces a series of tokens, which again are just like tuples, mm-hmm. and which Yek knows how to consume. And so it goes from leaks directly into Yek, and then from Yek comes out this AST that I have sort of designed to work with my, you know, my business logic, essentially. Right. Um, and I was actually thinking I might still end up making it fully qualified structs because then you get to do really cool stuff. Like, funnily enough, I was talking about how little I understand protocols, but one of the other libraries that I've really fallen in love with and, like, want to understand better is Witchcraft, mm-hmm. which gives you all of this crazy category theory stuff. And you can define what are essentially protocol implementations for these categories. They give you this really, really powerful, you know, lift, apply, monad, who knows what. And so you can do that for the structs that you want to output from your parser and essentially call these powerful combinators directly on the output of of this airline code. So, you know, if you stitch it all together, it's really powerful. That's cool. Um, can you just explain to the listeners what witchcraft is as well? We'll link to it in the show notes. But um, the short answer is no, because I'm. <laughs> um, so, right. So to go back, to, you know, I mentioned Haskell earlier, right? And mm-hmm. like Haskell's kind of one-line summation is using category theory to do programming, and so the next sentence from pretty much anybody is what is category theory i was gonna say why (laughs) (laughs) right exactly um and the the best answer that i can come up with as of right now is some really smart people told me that it's really useful but basically at the end of the day category theory gives you these oh boy i'm gonna get a lot of 
I don't want to go too deep into it because people on the internet who know about category theory and functional programming really know about it. I don't think they None listen, of them to, listen to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. good, that's good. That's because good. if they did, they'd be like, "You're wrong all the time." <laughs> <laughs> okay, here I, I'll give you. Um, I, I'll start from where I was, where, where I am kind of entering it, which is the the sort of oh, wouldn't this be useful? Mm-hmm. Part. So there's this thing called functors. <laughs> yeah. And again. Okay, great. Here we go. He's going to explain monads. Just wait no, for it. No, just wait. I'm not. I'm absolutely not. That is not going to happen. <laughs> See, the thing is, like, functors, I can't tell you what functors are in a category theoretical sense at all. But what functors let you do is they're exactly like enum, except you can, like, you can map through over something and get out any arbitrary data structure, not just a list. Yeah. Right? Like, that's the kind of one-line summation of why functors are cool. And so you can do a map, except it's a little more general than enum.map. And so specifically for this language thing I was telling you about, I've got this AST, right? And so I, I, I would very much like to be able to lift or map a function over the entire AST and recurse over it and make some AST transformations, but get back the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that with map, right? Because you get lists. Out. You can't. Yep map over a more complicated data structure and get the same data structure that's been transformed. You could reduce over a data structure and get a different one back. Right? Like you could reduce into a new data structure, into a map or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. I, if you yeah. wanna if you want to build the the data structure. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. But what's really neat about this is that this is like, okay, there are these things called functors. They have they have to obey these algebraic laws and math, 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 math. But if you implement the, you know, very simple kind of elemental, how would you map this particular thing, then it can fit all that together so that you don't even need to reduce, you don't need to create a new data structure, you just say, okay, map this, and it just sort of automatically gives you a transformed version of the same data structure. So that's where I start to get this intuition of, oh, like, my data structures are sometimes behaving like algebraic objects in ways that I don't fully understand yet, but I'm starting to get the sense of they actually could have like really useful applications for, for, you know, ordinary programming. That's the kind of, and so witchcraft gives you all of those. It, it, it gives you the entire giant universe of functors and applicatives and yes, monads <laughs> uh, and arrows and God knows what. And if you know how to use all those things, you can just use them right in Elixir. Wasn't Witchcraft wit- written by uh, Brooklyn Zelenka, who spoke it was in indeed. The Last Empex? Yeah. Yeah, uh, her talk uh, is really fascinating and definitely the sort of thing that, you know, you're going to watch it like five times before you understand everything that she says, but uh-huh. I-, I highly recommend it. If you like functors, <laughs> <laughs> you'll love Witchcraft. <laughs> That's cool. We'll definitely link to this in the show notes if you're interested. <laughs> and we should probably do another episode at some later point when we all understand witchcraft a bit more. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there we go. we'll see. Put that in the calendar. Yeah. <laughs> and then De- Desmond and I will try and explain monads to you. That will be a whole episode of us just going, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, they're like burritos, as I understand. And that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, burritos. burritos. Yeah. Everything is a sandwich. Um, and I guess on that note, we should probably... do it. You don't know that burritos are sandwiches? No, now I'm getting hungry. Oh, there you go. I mean, yeah. you've got great burritos over there, so you should probably go and do that. Yeah, that's really true. Yes, we do. 
us lesser mortals we just don't have that kind of food over here you know we have to make do with what we have just have wrapped tortillas (laughs) it's not the same so on this monadic ending um i guess we'll unpack it um i was trying to make a monad no yeah i mean like i i saw where you were yeah you were leaning towards? I was functoring? No, I don't know. Um, never try and make monad jokes. That's what I've learned today. T-I-L. Um, but I guess thank you so much, Zach, for coming on the show and uh, digging into Erlang, some monad stuff, and everything in between. So it's been great to have you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I was not expecting to be able to use the word functor. This episode so thanks a lot zach it's uh yeah been really great having you are we gonna bleep that out the functor functor that's not a bad word is it i know Maybe but it'd it be funny to like no just me <laughs> i'm sure it gives some people you know triggers them so yes i'm sure we'll put a rating at the top of this mm-hmm. episode mm-hmm. well again thank you zach for coming on thanks, uh zach. hopefully have you on at some point in the future it's been very enlightening and great to have you here so he unfortunately has to see me most days but um yeah we're, we're happy to have you on the podcast so thanks so much it's a delight cool well thank you very much for everyone for listening um as always if you like this episode you can go to wherever you get your podcast and give us a little rating and tell your friends about it because you know we like listeners we do this for you and yes that is all i have to say on that matter And uh, if you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter at twitter.com forward slash Elixir Talk. Or you can go to our website at elixirtalk.com and you'll find more contact details on there, as well as details about past episodes as well. But as always, we have been Desmond and Chris and with our special guest, Zach. And keep Keep elixiring. Yay, we nearly all did it, so <laughs> good night folks. Thanks guys. I thought that was pretty good. I thought that was great.